Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In the study that follows, I examine the textual constructions of Muhammad's body that emerge within the genres of Sira and Maghazi and Sunni Hadith literature from the earliest sources through the 11th century CE. Focusing on Muhammad's corporeal boundaries and limits, asking where Muhammad's body begins and ends, I track change in regard to the prophetic body's representation. I argue that changes across the sources express a growing investment in his power to achieve intercorporeal linkage with other bodies, through which Muhammad's body reaches beyond the expected boundaries of his own flesh. Quote. I ground this discussion in the notion of baraka. In the Quran, the BRK baraka root appears chiefly in verb form, signifying an action performed by God and directed upon objects that include human beings, as well as spatial designations such as lands and cities, natural phenomena such as trees and the rain that God causes to fall to the earth, and divinely revealed discourses that descend to humankind from the heavens." Muhammad's body perhaps most famously operates as a conduit of baraka and its capacity as a mode through which God reveals the Quran to humankind, end quote. These are some of the passages that set the stage for the latest monograph by our guest Michael Muhammad Knight. The monograph is called Muhammad's Body, Baraka Networks and the Prophetic Assemblished, and it is published by the University of North Carolina Press this year. Michael Muhammad Knight is the author of 13 books, including not only scholarship and scholarly reflection, but also novels and memoirs. He converted to Islam at 16 after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, traveled to Islamabad at 17 to study at a madrasa in Pakistan, and now has a PhD in Islamic studies from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. His books include The Taqwa Cores, Blue-Eyed Devil, Tripping with Allah, Islam, Drugs, and Writing, and Why I Am a Salafi. He is an assistant professor of religion and cultural studies at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. So without further ado, please allow me to welcome Professor Michael Muhammad Knight to our podcast. Welcome, Professor. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your energy that you gave to this. It's a a pleasure to have you on our podcast, and and I, I very much appreciate that you were able to join us today. Um, and as always, before we discuss the book, uh, we'd love to open up with your story. You've, you, you know, you have quite an overall. Uh, please do share with our listeners a little bit about your intellectual trajectory and what brought you to writing this particular book. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, in terms of the, the broader trajectory, uh, I've, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was thinking specifically about the book. You know, when when it comes to the the life story thing, I always kind of trip up because it's 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 a really messy thing. But as, as you said in the intro, um, I converted to Islam at 16. Uh, this was the early 90s. You know, Renaissance of Malcolm X, and 
Uh, you know, I, I went to Pakistan in my senior year of high school, had my ups and downs, and my journey, you know, prior to and, and through academia has been, you know, trying to really make sense of that experience and understand, uh, you know, I have some sense of, of what Islam as a as an entity, as an artifact was as I encountered it, right? A very historically specific artifact, uh, which means that there were other possibilities throughout history. So I, I've, I put a lot of um, time into to writing that story in terms of how I ended up you know, at, at this spot. With this particular project, I was interested in the prophet. I wanted to, to work on Hadith. I wanted to work on Hadith uh, with an attention to gender and how masculinity was constructed in the Hadith corpus and focusing on you know, Muhammad's masculinity. And, and what that meant, you know, what did it do? Uh, there's, you know, as, as we know, there's a growing body of gender theory um, literature in Islamic studies. Much of the progressive academic study of Islam in terms of gender theory centers the Quran, centers tafsir. And there's, there's some opportunities there. There's some openings for working on the Hadith corpus. Uh, so first, I had the interest in the prophet. I had interest in Muhammad. I had interest in Muhammad as a gendered body. And then along the way of trying to find my framework for thinking about the prophetic body, I ran into Deleuze. And Deleuze doesn't exactly have a system of the body or a theory of the body, but he asks provocative questions. So Deleuze asks, you know, what can a body do? Rather than what is the body? What is a body? Uh, what are its capabilities? How does it expand, extend its powers through connections with other bodies? So I took it's this- Function rather than form. Yeah. So, so I took this as my, my guiding um, question for the project. You know, like what is Muhammad, not what is Muhammad's body, but how can this body connect to other bodies? What can it do? And there, there's a lot of uh, provocative engagements of the body in Islamic studies. They tend to prioritize Sufism as the place where this conversation should happen. And, you know, Sufism and Hadith studies are not mutually exclusive. They intersect. But uh, I found an opportunity to expand or, you know, build on some of the insights from this uh, theoretical literature in the study of Sufism, such as, you know, Scott Kugel, uh, Bashir's work um, on Sufi bodies and, and center the Hadith uh, corpus more specifically. There was, there was a weird uh, moment that I had in the process of figuring out my project. And I went to a weekend seminar led by Yasser Qadi in Calgary. Oh, yeah. You open up the book with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and people who are familiar with my work or my social media persona or whatever <laughs> um, might find it odd that I'm sitting in the same room as Yasser Qadi listening to you know, his lectures. Uh, and that, that is a story for another time, you know, what that weekend <laughs> in Calgary looked like. But... There was this interesting anecdote that he shared about Musan Khan, the famed translator of the uh, Quran, the translation that's you know most favored by the Saudi media networks today. Uh, so Musan Khan had this dream in which he consumed the sweat of the Prophet. He encountered the Prophet sweating profusely and realized, like his in, in the logic of the dream, that his way of helping the Prophet would be to consume this sweat. And he went to you know. Bin Baz, you know, the big time Salafi scholar in Medina at the time. And Bin Baz, you know, Ibn Baz said, what this means is you're, you're going to do service to the Sunnah. 
And Yasser Kadi telling this story, it's, it's kind of a weird story, you know, uh, particularly maybe for a university audience uh, that this guy wants to drink someone's sweat, even if it's the prophet's sweat. Some people would be taken a bit back by that. But Yasser Kadi, he holds out his arm and he says, you know, of course, this is Baraka to drink the prophet's sweat. And that, mm-hmm. that really um, threw me a little bit, you know, as I was developing this project in terms of, you know, asking this Deleuzian question of what can Muhammad's body do when I'm looking in this Hadith corpus and seeing, you know, how do people report this body and, and their encounters with that body? Uh, so that's that's where, you know, I, I have like 20 years of, of journey <laughs> leading up to that, yeah. uh, to that moment. Um, you know, I, academia is always kind of me search, right? Like we're asking the question yes. that we find important by the process that got us there. I wanted to understand, you know, the possibilities for these constructions of, of Muhammad and the, the sheer, you know, um, multiplicity of, of options that there are in, in that corpus. So that's, that's what started it for me. Well, thank you so much for that. I would encourage all of our listeners to, to take a look at the other, some of the other works that the professor has written to get a better idea of uh, what he's referring to in terms of intellectual trajectory. Cause it's, it's quite fascinating and it's really, really uh, you know, you know, there should be an intellectual history of Michael Muhammad Knight. Uh, someone, someone has to, someone, someone has to do that work. Um, so the book is divided into five chapters and a conclusion. As a courtesy to our listeners, one thing I like to do is like I like to name the chapters, um, and then I try to go through them uh, with you, Professor, as we weave together the findings of your study. So chapter one is is called "Reading the Prophet's Body: Genealogy, Physiognomy, and Witness." Chapter two is called Muhammad's heart, the modified body. Chapter three is called Battling Muhammad, corporeal traces. Chapter four is called the sex of revelation, prophethood and gendered bodies. Chapter five is called secreting Baraka, Muhammad's body after Muhammad. And then there's a conclusion titled the Nabi without organs or NWO, which is a great, uh, great play <laughs> on the acronym. So, uh, <clears throat> Professor Knight begins f- the first chapter by discussing what is known as physiognomy, right? defined by Patricia Cox as a discourse of the body that, quote, sought to reveal a man's virtuous or vici- vicious nature by emphasizing certain aspects of the physique and linking these to specific character traits. You know, think about the uh, the epics that you read about in, in, in high school and then and the physical fitness of, uh, you know, those tragic heroes. Uh, you, uh, professor, the professor writes that uh, physiognomic, I hope I pronounced that right, physiognomic consciousness, quote unquote, was common in the literature of the era in which the prophet lived. Uh, professor Knight, can you break down for us what this discourse or this consciousness looked like specifically in Islamic literature, uh, perhaps with an example? Sure. Well, I'll zoom out first. Uh, basically, in Mediterranean antiquity, everybody cared about bodies, and bodies were were seen as ways of reading. You know, and, and the the soul is a unstable concept that's going to vary from place to place. But ways of reading the soul, right? That we can understand a person through looking at them and through treating their body, their external appearance, as a text to read. Uh, so we see it in the life of Socrates. We see it in varying degrees at different places in the Bible and early Christianity, when people are talking about how Jesus looked, whether Jesus was beautiful or not, and what the theological consequences of what were of that. Um, 
we see it all over the place. And it was, it was science for its time. And we see it in early Islam, uh, you know, as, as Persian physiognomic, uh, and maybe I'm saying it wrong. You know, I, I <laughs> do my, you know, work alone in my house. So, um, you know, these different literatures, Sanskrit, Persian, Greek literatures were traveling around, uh, Greek literatures of the body were translated to Arabic very early in the, in the about the translation movement and were flowing, um, you know, flowing around in these medical discourses. So we have people like Imam Shafi, who says that people with blue eyes are idiots. You Ooh, know, wow, interesting. Yeah. And, and <laughs> various physical, you know, abnormalities or quote unquote defects reveal someone's intelligence or, or lack of intelligence. Uh, it's all over the place. And so, you know, in Islamic traditions, we have a lot of accounts of the prophet's body in this very checklist kind of way. You know, this was his height, this was his hair, this was his skin. And, you know, we might read it in particular ways of just this is a a, a pious imaginary of the prophet, a way to think about him, to contemplate him. Uh, this is a, a veneration of him. It was, it was also a proof. Like it was, it was a kind of uh, statement of, well, yeah, he was a prophet because listen, his height was medium and his skin color was medium and his hair texture was medium. And in many of the physiognomic discourses of the time, uh, particularly in, in the Greek context, moderation of the body was perfection, right? Mm-hmm. So when we say Muhammad, you know, was the perfect medium in all these different accounts of his body or that he walked this particular way, um, or that this was, you know, this was the size of his joints, or this is how many gray hairs he had. Like this mm. wasn't an accident. That these were the important details of the body that, that people thought about. So I don't try to exactly pinpoint, you know, um, a, sp- a very specific genealogy of okay, here's exactly what this claim does. Sometimes, you know, we can have some confidence about that. Uh, you know, like in terms of bodily moderation, like that's kind of, uh, you know, clear, but I think it's worth saying that Muslims who were part of these networks, I don't want to say to say that the companions, because these are also networks speaking for the companions or speaking in the names of the companions, mm-hmm. uh, these networks authorized the prophet in a way by speaking about the details of the body. They cared about the details of the body and they were working in this context in which the details of the body really, really mattered just about everywhere. So you dedicate a chapter or specifically chapter two to a discussion on how the prophetic body changes the bodies of others, but is itself changed by interventions of other bodies. In other words, it's not a unidirectional thing. Rather, the prophet has an impact on the bodies of others, but these others also, uh, and these others, you know, to clarify for our listeners, can may, may not just be human beings. It can also be in, angels um and other other uh i get I, I don't know if sentient is the right word for it because that's a that's a very particular term but other 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 bodies just to stick to the stick to the terms in the book uh there's a particular quote that stuck out to me you write quote through acts of physical modification muhammad's body becomes a node of intensified connection between his companions and the unseen forces that act upon it unseen forces is, is, is yeah that's that's mm-hmm. much better the extended intercorporeal network includes humans and non-humans, including angelic and possibly divine bodies, as well as potentially demonic bodies, end quote. 
and you, you, you demonstrate this uh, with specifically with, with emphasis on traditions referring to the Prophet's heart. Uh, I, you know, most Muslims uh, are very familiar with, with the, the, you know, very, very famous hadith about when, when the Prophet was young and, and Angel Gabriel or an angel came and, and, and opened up his heart, cleansed, literally took it out physically, put it back in, cleansed it and put it back in and then closed up his chest. And this is a story that many of us hear uh, growing up as Muslims. So I was wondering how, uh, you know, if you could illustrate for us how the prophetic heart, whether figuratively as in this story or, or other stories, uh, or literally became a site for the changes you describe. And what, 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 how, how that shaped the way that, that people understood uh, the prophetic heart. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting tension because on the one hand, uh, in the preceding chapter, I, you know, I'm looking at how the prophet has this perfect body, right? And to people who see it report that it's perfect, uh, we get reports of his ancestry. Uh, people who see him or observing him is like this exceptional, you know, he's the pinnacle of creation. But on the other hand, uh, and this is you know, the chapter you're talking about now, uh, we also have these reports of the body needing some kind of improvement or some kind of work being done upon it. So the big idea that I return to over and over again throughout the book is that there's not this singular conception of the body, that we have these heterogeneous networks, crisscrossing networks, different companions with different ideas, different networks speaking for those companions with different investments in the body. And so we do see what might appear as contradictions. If we were looking at the Hadith corpus as the work of a singular author or a singular compiler, right? Uh, we would think, oh, well, why does he have the perfect body, but also his heart needs modification? Um, but we, it's, it's very messy. It's very tangled up. We have thousands of people contributing to this, these narratives of the prophet's life. So there are reports of his heart actually undergoing physical material modification, being washed, again, physically. Like people are saying they saw the scars. Anas says he saw the traces of the stitching on the prophet's body to suggest mm -hmm. that it's not metaphorical, it's not visionary. This was a physical thing that happened to the prophet's heart, which, you know, in antiquity would have been seen as the place where you think, right? Like your heart was mm -hmm. your mind or your soul, you know, for a lot of people. Um, so we, we see narratives in which, like you said, you know, angels perform this kind of surgery on the prophet's body, extracting his heart, sometimes removing a demonic share a demonic piece of that heart that apparently all human beings have, but for the prophet that had to be removed for him to really be the prophet. Uh, that's one of those points where I, you know, I encounter these ambiguities about the prophet's body because on the one hand, the prophet's body is this supreme baraka transmitting machine. And on the other hand, there's these seemingly objected pieces of it, right? So if you encountered that demonic piece, if that piece of flesh was somehow preserved, would you think of it as, the demonic, this is like the shaitan's share of Muhammad's body, Muhammad's heart, and you should treat it as something from shaitan uh, or attached to shaitan, or do you treat this as a part of the prophet's body, even if it's one that was discarded? So I run into these ambiguities quite a bit. Uh, so the prophet's heart undergoes this surgery. We also see, uh, and th this is something that might be theologically awkward for Muslims today, uh, particularly God having a body and God's body actually touching Muhammad's body, that God appears to Muhammad, that he touches him with a physical, tangible hand. Uh, and sometimes this has the 
you know, disclaimer of, well, I was dreaming, I was sleeping, you know, so you get it in the context of a vision, um, you know, an alternate reality, but still real, that God touches Muhammad with his hand. Muhammad feels the coolness of God's hand. So again, attesting to this being a physical sensation uh, and God transmits wisdom and knowledge into Muhammad's body through that physical touch. And, you know, again, like I'm, I'm going to emphasize this point that there's not a singular vision of the body in the Hadith corpus. So maybe mm-hmm. someone like Anas or Ibn Abbas or their networks report that idea of God. Aisha is staunchly against that. Aisha vehemently, no, the prophet did not see God, not with the eyes of his head, not with the eyes of his heart. He did not see God, let alone, you know, he didn't touch God or was touched by God. So we have these multiplicities when it comes to thinking about the prophet's heart. You know, um, was it change? Did it require some change? What did it mean that he was, he underwent this angelic surgery? When in his life did it happen? Because for some accounts, it happens when he's a child. For other accounts, it happens right before the ascension. So does the surgery prepare him for prophethood or does the surgery prepare him to leave this world momentarily and go into another world? Uh, there are theological consequences to what happens to Muhammad's heart, when it happens, and who does it. Mm. Right. So um, all these intersecting narratives, intersecting networks, they, they do meet at the heart. And we don't have a coherent, this is the singular idea of Muhammad's heart. On the on the question of touch and 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 leaving sort of uh, a mark behind, I think this is a great transition into the next question that I wanted to ask, uh, which is also the next part of your study, which looks at the material traces of the body. And you write that these these material traces essentially quote act as affective forces that enable his, i.e., the prophet's body to in, engage and change a variety of other bodies, whether other living things, inanimate objects, or a body of water that flows in abundance and becomes sweeter due to his saliva or urine. End quote. Um, I'll be honest that that you know that I that threw me off, uh, especially the very the very last part of it. And I and I'm curious to know, um, you know, if you if you'd be able to provide an example or two of how these are treated in the text. Um, you know, what sort of ambiguities they, they also raised and, uh, you know, how do you work to make sense of it? So uh, again, we just have this extraordinary heterogeneity of narrations about the prophet's body, what it can do, uh, what can it connect with? How can it connect with people? Uh, what kind of connections can people or should people desire from it? So we see these traces of Muhammad's body. They're not exactly his body but they're not not his body. So his hair, his fingernails, his sweat, his saliva. Uh, what is the relationship of these things to the body once it's once they've been severed, right? Like once once his hair is not attached to his head, is it still his body? What is, his, what is its connection to his body? And so we see in the Hadith corpus people using his hair for healing, for dipping hairs in prophetic hairs in water and then having people drink that water. Uh, we see his sweat being used for perfume uh, and also specifically for baraka. Uh, people say, oh, we collect this for the baraka in it uh, for our children. Uh, we see saliva being used as a healing agent. So the prophet spits into Ali's eye and cures his eye. We see saliva being used um, as a kind of a patriarchal initiation that the prophet uh, 
basically gives saliva to infant sons, not his sons, but, you know, infant boys uh, in the community as a way of like bringing them in. Um, so so we, we see a lot of reports in which substances, fluids, various things that come from the prophetic body act as satellites of that body or, you know, extenders of his corporeality. And sometimes we, we even see that with urine and blood. And, and again, you know, some of the things I look at, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be comfortable reading for everybody that someone consumed the prophet's urine and found either a medicinal benefit from it or a soteriological benefit from it that, you know, it, it protects them from the fire that you can mm-hmm. do something from the prophet's body and you are what you eat. Right. So if, yeah. part of the prophets in you or something connected to the prophets in you and changed your body, that body can't go in the fire, you know? So, um, we see this with, with the prophet's blood in a few narrations. We see it with his urine in a few narrations. And these, these hadiths with focusing on these substances, they come and go, you know, sometimes they're, they're included and sometimes they're not. Uh, so they, they have rising fortunes in the corpus and they they intersect with other narrations that would maybe you know marginalize them uh so again it's it's this extraordinary heterogeneity this extraordinary multiplicity in the hadith corpus of what are these substances what are their powers what are their capacities what can they do uh blood is forbidden as a food you know you can't eat blood but muhammad's blood is something different in some reports not necessarily the most canonical, canonical reports, but we see that there, that Muhammad's blood is something different. So on the question of, uh, of multiplicity and heterogeneity, I think it gets even more interesting now when you start talking about gender, because that opens up an entirely new uh, conversation and complicates things even further. Uh, and this is the subject of your next chapter, which in my opinion was maybe my favorite one, where... Uh, you know, you identify in the Islamic tradition with reference to numerous scholarly works on gender and sexuality, what you refer to as the construction of divine masculinity, where even if the entity being discussed is said to be theologically genderless, it is still socially gendered in the sense that, you know, for example, when when, when you talk about God or when, when scholars talk about God, whom, you know, both within the normative Islamic tradition uh, as well as presumably in, in academic studies, transcends gender. Uh, and angels who in, 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 in the Islamic tradition are genderless, um, nonetheless, they are masculinized. Prophethood itself is also gendered. Um, so how do gender and gendered bodies complicate your study? This was, uh, this was an area uh, in the project where I, I had a lot of mixed feelings and I had concerns about, you know, we, we always think about the impact of our work and what happens when we send our stuff out into the world. Uh, we can't predict what people are going to do with it. And, you know, I, I didn't want to make something more difficult in terms of um, resources that people find useful. I didn't want to take resources away from people. Uh, it's kind of a truism in many of our contemporary discourses that God transcends gender, that the angels transcend gender, that any use of masculine pronouns in the sources referring to them, it's simply an accident of Arabic grammar. Uh, but when I, when I looked at the Hadith corpus specifically, I found that really complicated. 
I, it wasn't easy for me to say that, that. Oh, in Islam, God is genderless. God transcends gender. Uh, the Hadith corpus, you know, not 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 to mention the Quran, but I think the you know the Hadith corpus does this a little more intensely, makes that a, a, a difficult um, claim for me to to sign on to. And I, I say in my introduction, you know, I I confront these difficult questions in the text. I don't have a particular theological prescription for how to deal with them. So, for example, you know, I consider myself very much, you know, when I, when I think of my genealogies that inform me and, and drive me, I am touched and informed and inspired and driven by the work of Amin al right? Mm. Um, when it comes to thinking about the divine feminine and the possibilities for that and the complexities of what we can do in Islamic theology, I am inspired by Sadia Sheikh's work on Ibn Arabi, right? So, so there's a multiplicity in the tradition there. I'm looking at things that are difficult for me in the text, and I don't necessarily, pres- I don't prescribe the answer. Sometimes my answer is that the Hadith corpus is so messy that there's not one singular answer, right? So, so you can, you can do the wandering yourself and um, find what works for you in it. Uh, but but it's challenging, and then you know there there's some theological traditions that I'm sympathetic to that you know would would find the hadith representation of God as a, a young man with a body to be fine. You know the nation of Islam uh, teaches specifically that 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 God is a man with a body. Um, so I'm not prescribing the window. I'm not prescribing the the resources that will will solve this, but. Uh, I do find it very complicated the way that the Hadith corpus does take part in a gendering of God and angels. So when Gabriel interacts with human beings, when he enters, when, when Gabriel enters into human society, he does so with a body Mm. and he interacts with humans in human society by the rules of human society. So like he appears and performs in masculine ways. Like he becomes gendered by virtue of entering into a society where everything has to be gendered. And we see that in the Hadith corpus when people are asking questions of how men should interact with families in their homes. You know, when, when, you're, when a man is interacting with someone else, another man's wife, and they look at Gabriel interacting with Khadija. Oh, mm-hmm. well, Gabriel, I mean, Gabriel, <laughs> a man, kind of, and this is what he did. So this is our precedent. Um, and s- similarly, you know, to the angels, you know, God interacts with Muhammad kind of as, as it's going to seem weird to say this, but like as two dudes, you know, like God appears as a, a handsome young man, you know, um, and this, this is challenging for me personally. You know, I, I've written about my own, you know, in a very confessional, you know, and I'm not wearing my academic hat, but my, you know, hallucinogenic hallucinogenic tea drinking hat (laughs) um you know my 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 personal you know imaginaries of our encounters with the divine feminine uh but just as as an academic engaging these texts and finding these difficult questions and there's no magical tea that i can drink to to solve it you know yeah um so so it is challenging but at the same time there's also like i said a possibility in the multiplicity of the sources. You know, when we talk about God appearing as, as a young man to the prophet, it is men narrating this. Right. right. So who's telling us 
that God appeared as a man, men, Ibn Abbas, Anas, you know. Um, and if you subscribe to a notion that all companions are trustworthy narrators and cannot be questioned on their narrations, you know, that's your particular theological prescription. That's fine. But Aisha vehemently opposes that vision. Mm. She says anyone who says that is a liar. And she doesn't say you're a liar unless you're a companion because I subscribe to this doctrine of the companion, <laughs> you know, universally trustworthy that comes you know, a few generations later. <laughs> you know, she right. says, you are a liar, Ibn Abbas. You know, she doesn't name Ibn Abbas, but like she hears this, you know, oh, Ibn Abbas is going around saying that the prophet saw his Lord, and Aisha's like, no. Uh, so we do have these multiple options, right? Depending on how you think about the hadith corpus again we we tend to think of the hadith corpus as this big singular block that you either accept or reject but there's chances to wander in there yeah there's chances to explore and, and find different possibilities similarly with the gendering of prophethood you know um there are hadiths in which muhammad says if his son ibrahim had lived he would have been a prophet what do we do with that hmm. because fatima's over here saying uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. hey, hey, Dad, <laughs> I'm, I'm here. <laughs> you know? uh, what 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 do we do with that? Uh, what the gendered consequences? How has prophethood become a gendered thing with those hadiths? But that that's kind of your your personal engagement of those hadiths. Do you check the isnad? You know, is it is it, is it trustworthy? Is it properly canonical? Um, do you like the reporters? Is it sahih? Uh, do you have some other methodology for engaging these cities? Do you simply just, I don't like the companions to whom it's attributed? You know, like the Hadith yeah, yeah. can be taken apart. It's it's not a singular thing. It's made of pieces. Fascinating. Wow. And I, I think uh, the question that you asked, uh, the, the concern that you raised about, you know, the, the Prophet's son, uh, you know, had he, had he had he survived, what what how would the community have uh you know engaged with him as the son of the prophet and <clears throat> this is a perfect transition because your 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 last chapter discusses precisely uh this kind of question the idea of you know what okay you know the prophet came and the prophet has gone but now there is a post-mortem muhammad and muhammad has biological descendants through his daughter fatima um, and this post-mortem muhammad as well as his biological descendants both operate as sites through which Muhammad Muhammad's baraka or the Muhammadan baraka is transmitted after his biological death. Um, and so, I'd be curious to know some of the ways in which the tradition engaged with these two sites, and, I, and I'm sure that could be a monograph of its own. Um, but I would be curious to know if you can, you know, share with us an example or two of how that worked um, in terms of. What what became of this this Muhammadan baraka after the Prophet's death, and you know how does it persist up until this very day, where you have um, perhaps thousands of people uh, claiming to be Sayyids uh, or descendants of the prophetic family? How does that how does that how does this function today? Yeah, so the the baraka extension or the extension of the baraka transmitting corporeality continues. Uh, on, on that point, I would recommend uh, someone else's book. Um, Pierce's 12 infallible men. I, I'm really, I'm, I'm in like the same fog brain as everyone else in this context, you know, our, our present situation. Um, so I hope I'm getting the title right off the top of my head right now, but 12 infallible men, 
uh, by Matthew Pierce uh, deal specifically with Shi'i Imam bodies and engages Fatima as, as part of that, that process of, of this ongoing, uh, you know, extension of the prophetic corporeality through these bodies. Um, but yeah, in both the cases of Fatima and in the postmortem prophetic body, we see, again, these ambiguities, these tensions. So with, with Fatima, um, it was interesting to me that, you know, she's part of the prophet. The prophet says as much. She's part of the prophet. Uh, she's his child that outlives him. She's the continuation of his line, but we don't see the same investment in her corporeality, right? So we have narrations of Muhammad's blood being salvific or medicinal for people that there's a benefit. And he's he's very few, like a handful, a couple narrations that there's some benefit to consuming the prophet's blood. Uh, But Fatima doesn't menstruate. Like, Like she has this exemption from this natural bleeding process, right? So we don't see Fatima's blood factor into conversations about Baraka. No one's interested in encountering Fatima's blood. And the prophet even says, you know, this particular process, she doesn't even undergo that. She's been exempted from it. Uh, Fatima is not only from the prophet, but she's also like a of paradise because there are hadiths in which the prophet eats a fruit in paradise and then returns to earth and conceives Fatima. And she's born from that. Uh, essentially, but like her body still doesn't, we, we, we just don't see in these specific sources, we don't see that same kind of investment in her as a Baraka transmitter, except for the fact that she's having children um, that continue the prophet's prophetic bar, um, corpore, you know, corporeality. Uh, in terms of the postmortem prophet, it's really interesting. You know, I, I do a lot of what I, what I call tracking change throughout the book, where I'm trying to trace the, I'm trying to tell a story of the prophet's body becoming more significant over time and having these special properties expanding and intensifying over time. Uh, well, old narrations don't go away and we have this real messiness about, you know, what exactly is the prophetic body. We see that a lot with his corpse. So in the earliest narrations of, of his uh, postmortem body, people are, you know, as, as many of us are familiar with the narrative, people were unsure that he could die and they weren't convinced that he could die. And some people are saying, look at his body. It's it's showing the normal signs of de- decomposition. It's it's going through what a dead body goes through. And some of these, they're, they're kind of gruesome reports. But a few generations later, those narrations become unacceptable, that we have a narration or an established idea that prophetic bodies do not decompose, that they remain intact. The earth has been prohibited from consuming them. And not only that, but they are alive in some sense. And they are continuing to, to pray uh, in their graves. So while this vision of the prophet's body changes over time, the old narrations just don't go away. We see, you know, with with the um, with, with completists, you know, with people who really just want to grab every hadith they can, these old narrations and new narrations have to coexist sometimes. So in both the case of Fatima's body and the, the prophetic corpse, we, we see a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity, and, and we see changes, but it's never as simple as one narrative absolutely overtaking another. They, they, they coexist. They intersect with each other. Um, I wanted to also briefly, uh, before we conclude, uh, your, your Nabi Without Origins uh, 
NWO conclusion. So I was, I wanted to ask, you know, what, what, what are some of your, 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 your final thoughts um, for our listeners? Um, and if you could be willing to share some of what you're currently working on and what we can look forward to from you in the future. Okay. So the big thing that in each chapter becomes really important for me is just how unpredictable the prophetic body is that we can't simply say, what does Islam say about Muhammad's body? Or even what do, what does the Hadith corpus say about the prophetic body? On the one hand, we can track trajectories. We can say, you know, the Quran, our earliest source doesn't really have a ton of explicitly stated investment in the prophetic body. However, we see an investment of the prophetic body grow over time and become more intense over time. And then again, at the same time, it's again, it's not one narrative erasing another and taking its place that we have a multiplicity of networks and reporters. So we, again, we, we think of the Hadith corpus as a big united singular voice, just one monolithic voice. We think of the makers of that corpus as one singular communal block. But what I advocate in this, in the course of this project is breaking it down into its parts to the point that, you know, we, we get an Aisha network, we get an Ibn Abbas network, we get an NS network and we can see like, Oh, there's, there's all these different, different ideas of what the prophetic body can do. If we looked at Aisha's ideas, and again, this Aisha is as much a, a brand as a historical person. So I'm not saying every Hadith going back to Aisha is really from Aisha or the opposite of that. But when we look at the Aisha corpus, she tends to treat the prophetic body as very mundane. It can smell bad even. She talks about how he threw away a cloak because his sweat smelled bad in it. And she makes fun of his breath when he visits his co- her, her co-wife. Um, Aisha authorizes herself by the prophetic body, but in a very different way than someone like Anas or Ibn Abbas. Like for Aisha, it's intimacy. We ate from the same food. We bathed in the same you know, tub. His body accidentally touched mine when he was praying and I was between him and the Qibla. We have these intimacy moments, but we don't have these, I am corporeally changed by virtue of being married to him. You know, Aisha treats the prophetic semen as just waste to be scratched out with a fingernail or, or a, a ritual pollutant, you know, versus the way that other companions are saying, you know, this was the power in his urine and the power in his saliva and his sweat and his blood and his hair and his fingernails. Um, the Hadith corpus is big enough and vast enough that there's exceptions to every generalization. So you can find something where Aisha speaks of the prophetic body as something special, but at the same time, we do see these trends. We do see these patterns where Aisha just speaks about her husband's body differently than all these men um, and, and some women. So there's a lot of possibility for exploration in the Hadith corpus, and there's not a singular vision of the prophetic body. So that, that's what I, I keep trying to, to drive home in, in the course of the book, that, it, that it's a really, really messy body of reports produced by thousands of people across varying different regional and sectarian and methodological contexts. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on now, uh, I have holes in my shirt, and I noticed this on day four <laughs> wearing that shirt. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I finished a project or, you know, 
most of the work was done with a project before all this happened and my brain just really went to mush. Um, I, I have a book coming out this fall on the Ansarul law community, also known as the Nubian Islamic Hebrews, which is a very important but neglected community in based primarily in Brooklyn and Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s, uh, later became known as the Nuwabians. And it's really, really an unexplored corner of African-American Islam. Uh, and I, I'm really trying to take on what exists of, of a master narrative and what little scholarship there is on them. Uh, the, the, the short version is people say they wildly and incoherently oscillated between different investments, such as Islam, Judaism, UFO religion, Egyptology, and Freemasonry, and Native American religion, and so on. And what I'm arguing is that they actually really did care about coherence, um, and they did have a, a sense of their own continuity, even if it didn't make sense to outsiders. So that's my book, Metaphysical Africa, with um, Penn State University Press uh, coming out same season. So I, I, was, I was lucky, you know, before, <laughs> while I could still work, I, I worked, and uh, it's not happening now. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for sharing your concluding thoughts. And, and I hope our listeners caught, uh, you know, the name of the book, Metaphysical Africa. Um, that, that'll be out this this coming fall. But, you know, a special thank you to Professor Michael Muhammad Knight um, for joining us on this particular podcast to discuss Muhammad's body, Baraka Networks, and the, <clears throat> my apologies, Muhammad's body, Baraka Networks, and the Prophetic Assemblage by UNC Press, published this year, 2020. Uh, get your hands on it as soon as you can. And once again, thank you so much for joining us, Professor, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Until next time.